Went to his merchant just to get some meat and meal. Palmer went to his merchant just to get some meat and meal. What's happening? What's happening? What's happening, blues people and great folks that are tuning in? Remember. Hit that subscribe button to the YouTube page channel. Subscribe to our email mailing list. And always look for the updates of articles and content as we bring you the story, history, culture, traditions, vernaculars, everything. What I like to call black folk narrative of the American black experience. Today, yes, I have cheat notes. I have a very special guest, uh, author, musician, actor, lecturer, and cultural bearer. Let's bring him on. Brother Daryl Davis, how are you, sir? Lamont, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Now, the pleasure is truly mine. I mean, you. so once a year, and correct me if I'm wrong, but once a year I watch The Wire. And I ended up watching it earlier this year because I usually watch it at the end of the year during vacation time. That's like my little vacation. Uh-huh. But when 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 uh, Brother Michael passed, I, I got the urge to watch it immediately. And we get you know to the um, season where they're tracing down the, the track phones, the throwaway phones, and I said, <laughs> "Wait a minute." <laughs> So, I mean, I thought I had my hands in everything. You're, you're doing a lot. I did, uh, I did two episodes of The Wire. And, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, um, I've, I've, never, I've never seen the program. I, I have the series. Uh, I've just been so busy. But I got the series, and I plan on watching it. Because I understand, you know, you, you can't just watch one episode. You have to start at the beginning because it's serial. Yes. So, you know, that's what I want to be able to do. Yeah, yeah. On that note, for me, as a storyteller, that is one of the best uh, narrated or uh, narrative stories for television I've ever seen. The way that's it was. what I've heard. Yeah, it took. You know, I, I wasn't one of the ones who were, who was watching it in real time. Uh, mm-hmm. A good friend of mine kept urging me to watch it, and. Um, it took me, he gave me the set. He burned it itself. It took me a long time, not intentionally, because like yourself, it was just, I didn't have the, I didn't, I didn't have the time to watch it. It just so happens one day I was doing absolutely nothing, which is very rare. And when I get those moments, I really <laughs> jump on it. And it came on HBO. And I was like, wait a minute. I think it was like the second or third season and I saw just one episode. I said, I have have to. So we we looked for it and found it. And and that was the first time we watched it in its entirety and it's become a tradition. But yeah, it's a a great series. Um, But back to you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I need to understand and and I would like the audience to have a good understanding as we get into this conversation. What started your journey in in 
preserving or being a cultural bearer for traditional black music and its performance? Okay. Well, first of all, um, understand a little bit of my background. Uh, I was a child of parents in the U.S. Foreign Service. So I lived overseas in many different countries growing up. I was born in Chicago. My parents are from Virginia. Um, I lived in Africa for 10 years. I lived in Europe. Um, when I was, I started traveling at the age of three. I was born in 1958. I'm 63 years old now. So I started traveling in 1961. We moved to Ghana for two years. You know, then Ethiopia, uh, Senegal, Guinea, different places. Anyway, over there, overseas, the the music that we would hear on the radio was about four to five years behind what you were hearing in the states. Mm. So in 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 the early 1960s, when my peers were were hearing the Beach Boys, the Supremes, the Temptations, the Beatles, I was hearing Elvis Presley, Chuck mm. Berry, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, Fats Domino the coasters, the platters, the drifters, all that kind of stuff, right? So literally, I grew up with, with the music of the 50s where, you know, my, my peers grew up with the music of the 60s, all right? And so <clears throat> I always liked music and uh, I never aspired to be a musician, but um, I want to be, believe it or not, my hero was uh, James Bond. I want to be a spy. <laughs> 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 and to this day, I still have my 007 briefcase where you push the handle, a button on the handle, and it fires a plastic bullet. And nice. My James, yeah, my James Bond decoder belt. I mean, it's probably worth a lot of money now, right? But uh, <laughs> anyway, um, I either want to be a spy or a computer programmer. And back then, you know, in my in my you know early teenage years, computers took up more than this whole room. Right. And I knew there was money to be had. And I knew that they would eventually get smaller. I never dreamed they'd get as small as my cell phone. Right. But, um, you know, um, so somehow or another, I made a left turn. I went and saw Elvis Presley. I went and saw really? Chuck Berry. Yeah. And man, when I saw what those guys did on stage, it just turned my whole head around. Mm. Um, and so in later years in high school, you know, before I was to graduate, I thought about, you know, what do I want to do? And since both computers and um, and spying, espionage, were pulling at me with equal force in opposite directions, you know, I, I, I couldn't move either way. And I, want, I, I was trying to figure out how can I have both careers? Well, back then you couldn't. Today you hmm. can. It's called cyber espionage, right? But, uh, <laughs> you know, that, yeah, but that did not exist back then when I was in high school. So I thought about people that I admired. And um, those two names came to mind, Elvis Presley and Chuck Berry. And what I admired about them, Lamont, was the fact that both of these gentlemen had made millions upon millions of people all over the world happy with their music. People that they would never meet, people that they would never see. If the, if the fans were lucky enough, they might see Elvis or Chuck in concert or see them on the TV, but they knew their sound. They knew their records from the radio or they own the records or whatever. I said, you know, that's really cool. I want to be able to touch people that I don't even know. So I'm going to play music, despite the fact I couldn't play. I had to teach myself, right? And then later I went to Howard University and got my degree in music. But 
what I what I realized was that this music came. I mean, yes, you know, these people were 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 innovators and pioneers and things like that. Um, right. But Elvis got a lot of his stuff from black musicians, the blues, gospel, and all this. Chuck Berry, who is black, of course, who was black, he's passed on now, like Elvis. Um, he also got it from older black people before him. Uh, he he listened to to, uh, to to big band swing. He listened to country music and blues and boogie woogie, and with, and with that he created rock and roll. And you know, it, in order to play that kind of music, you have to go back and listen to what those people listened to to figure out how they got that sound. What were they hearing? Because before Chuck Berry, there was no rock and roll. You know, there was there was jump blues. There was the blues. There was big band swing and all that, but there was no rock and roll. Right. So what was he hearing? What was Elvis hearing? And that's when I, you know, went backwards and investigated. Found Muddy Waters, Robert Johnson, Meet Lux Lewis, Pete, you know, Pete Johnson, Albert Ammons, all these people. And so I began studying that. And a lot of those people, of course, had passed on. But the ones who were alive when they would come to town, I would go see them. I got to become good friends with um, with Muddy Waters. His piano player uh, ended up teaching me how to play piano. Uh, mm. Pine Top Perkins, you wow. know, um, Chuck Berry's piano player, Johnny Johnson, also taught me how to play piano. All of this outside of my college training, because you know they don't teach you boogie woogie in college, you know, right? So, right. Da, 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 you know, you know, and all that, right? So. I got it from the people that helped create it. And the sad thing was that these people were undercredited. And you realize when they go, you know, it's just going to be just another passing and there's going to be nobody to preserve that music. And it's being taken over and, you know, expanded upon this and the other. But it needs to be preserved and credit needs to be given where credit is due. And that's why I'm so interested today. And also, you know, I'm very much into civil rights and bringing people together, especially the races, because of a lot of racial division in our country. I've been doing this now going on four decades, 37 mm. years, you know, meeting with white supremacists and all that kind of thing. And um, turning them on to a lot of education that they didn't have, which has gotten them out of those movements. Um, but one thing about rock and roll, just about every form of American music, music that was created here in our country, not brought over from Europe or brought over from somewhere else, but created here, has had a Black influence. Black people have created most forms of American music, the blues, jazz, gospel, even country music. Uh, Hank Williams Sr., the father of country music, Learn to play guitar from a black uh, blues street guitar player named Rufus T. Tot Payne. And even Hank Jr. sings a song called T. Tot about, about T. Tot influencing his father and all that. In exchange for sandwiches, Hank, Hank, Hank Sr. would bring Rufus sandwiches uh, on the sidewalk of Montgomery, Alabama, while he's playing the guitar for quarters and dimes in his, in his guitar case. In exchange for sandwiches, Rufus would teach Hank how to play the guitar. And, and to me, people like Hank Williams, Patsy Cline, Jimmy Rogers, yes, they're country stars, 
you know, that's how they're categorized. Right. But to me, they are blues singers because right. they sing from the heart. They sing from the soul, from the gut. They sing about real things, you know, and that's the blues. And you listen to songs like um, Your Cheating Heart, Move It On Over, Hey, Hey, Good Looking. That's something but a blues. One, four, five chords blues, you know? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And um, even the uh, Carter family. Yes. Had in fact, a- I, I met I met Mother Maybell Carter. I met her. And, uh, you know, she was uh, Johnny Cash's mother-in-law. And uh, her, her daughters, June Carter and, the, and her sisters, uh, I had gone to see uh, Johnny Cash one time. And I, I actually wasn't there to see Johnny. I was there to see Carl Perkins. Carl Perkins was a good friend of mine. And uh, he was on tour with Johnny Cash. But um, uh, the night that I went, he was um, he, he had taken ill the night before at, at, where, at wherever they played. So he didn't make this show. But I was there and I hung around and watched the show. And Johnny Cash put on one heck of a show. And mm-hmm. he had he had Mother Maybell and the Carter sisters all there. Uh, so, you know, I got to meet them and talk with them as well. But uh, Leslie Riddle, who worked for A.B. Carter, um, you know, played music. And um, and he taught Mother Maybell his guitar style. And in turn, she would incorporate that into her music. And most white country artists who came after Mother Maybell patterned their guitar playing after her, you know, until Merle Travis and Chet Atkins, et cetera. But right. a lot of the early ones patterned their guitar playing after Mother Maybell, who patterned hers after Leslie Riddle, a black man. Correct. And, and a lot of this is history that a lot of people don't, don't know and don't understand. And most people think, you know, the banjo is a, you know, white Appalachian bluegrass instrument. It came from Africa. I mean, a lot of people know the drums did, but they didn't know that about the banjo. Correct. 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 So so now with that being, because there was a lot of things that you touched on that I actually wanted to speak about. But let's slightly pivot to one of the statements you made in your answer, which uh, pertains to your civil rights work. And, and trying to bring people together because I found it interesting. And I even spoke to my nephew about this. Um, your work um, documenting your encounters with the Ku Klux Klan. What, I, what sparked a even thought to you to let, let me go, you know, let, let me go into this world. And then how was it, what was it like? Sure. Well, um, ooh. well, I'll give you one instance. I was 10 years old, one of the times when I came back from my, my parents' assignment overseas, because you come back every two years, and I was in the fourth grade. I was one of two black kids in the entire school, myself in fourth grade and a little black girl in second grade. So consequently, all of my friends were white. Um, many of my male friends were members of the Cub Scouts, and, and they invited me to join. This is 1968, I'm 10 years old. And so I joined the Cub Scouts. They were wonderful to me, had a great time, all that. Well, we had a march, a, a parade, along with several other organizations, Girl Scouts, Brownies, Boy Scouts, 4-H Club, etc. And the streets were blocked off, the sidewalks were lined with nothing but white people waving and cheering and smiling. Everything was fine until we reached a certain point along this parade route when suddenly, boom, I'm getting hit with our bottles 
soda pop cans and small debris from the street by just a small group, maybe four or five people, white people mixed in with the larger crowd off to my right on the sidewalk. Now, because I had never experienced anything like this before, I thought I had done something to cause them to do this. I hadn't done anything, you know? And, and, and I'm thinking, okay, you know, these people, you know, they don't like the scouts. That's how naive I was. Right. So it wasn't until my, my den mother and my cub master, my troop leader, they all came running over and covered me with their bodies and escorted me out of the danger. And I'm like saying, why are they doing this? Why are they doing this? And all they would do is just shush me and rush me along telling me everything's going to be okay. Keep moving, keep moving. It'll be okay. And so they never answered my question. Now they knew what was wrong. I didn't. And so at the end of the, of the parade, I went home and my mother and father who were not you know, in attendance of the parade, uh, they were putting band-aids on me and cleaning me up and asking me, how did I fall down and get all scraped up? I told them, you know, I didn't fall down, I told them what had happened. And for the first time in my life, my mom and dad sat me down and explained to me what racism was. Mm. I had no clue, believe it or not, at the age of 10, I had never heard the word racism. Why? Not, not that I was naive or stupid. Well, yeah, I was naive, but I wasn't stupid. But, but the, word, the word and that behavior did not exist in my world. When I was overseas, I went to international schools. My classes were filled with kids from Nigeria, Japan, Czechoslovakia, Russia, Germany, France, Sweden, Anybody who had an embassy in those countries, all of their kids went to the same school. And my first exposure to school was overseas. I went over when I was three years old, right? So I was in kindergarten, first grade, third grade, fifth grade, seventh grade. Every two years, we come back here. So my, my first exposure to school was a multicultural environment. So that became my baseline. That's all I knew. And even though we may not look alike, we don't speak the same language, we don't worship the same way, whatever, we all got along. Mm. You know, we played together, we worked together, we had slumber parties. There was never any racial tension. But when I would come back home to my own country, I would either be in all black schools or black and white schools, meaning the still segregated or the newly integrated. Right. Even, yeah, even though desegregation was passed by the Supreme Court in 1954, it didn't happen overnight like a light switch. It no. took years and years, right? So even in the 60s, schools were still you know, uh, segregated just by neighborhoods and zoning and all that kind of stuff. Right, because um, didn't Mississippi just recently lift their segregation in school laws, something to this effect, a couple of years ago? Um, I remember just a couple years ago that um, in one place, I think it was Pearl, Mississippi, right? Uh, they had um, they had separate proms, a black prom and a white prom, and they did not allow any interracial uh, at their proms. You know, now we're in twenty twenty one, twenty twenty. Yeah, yeah. Like you know, like I've said, we live in space age times with a lot of people still with Stone Age minds. You know, I mean, it's just, <laughs> I mean, it's not funny, but it's, it is, you know. Right. Um, so anyway, um, you know, I, I, when my parents were explaining this to me, 
my 10-year-old brain could not process that because the people on the sidewalk, I remember there being a couple kids, maybe a year or two older than me, and a couple of adults who were participating in this throwing. They did not look any different to me than my white friends overseas, whether they were my little French friends, my little Danish or Australian friends, or my fellow Americans from the embassy, or for that matter, my American friends right here in the, in the U.S. that I was in school with who treated me rather well. So the color of somebody's skin had nothing to do with how they treated me. I didn't believe my parents because wow. I couldn't process it. Right. I didn't right, believe right. it. So about a month and a half, two months later, that same year, 1968, on April the 4th, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And I remember it very clearly, very clearly, every major city in this country burned to the ground all in the name of this new word I had learned a couple months back called racism. And so then I realized, you know, this thing my parents told me about, it is true. It does exist. Wow, you know? But what I didn't know was why? Why are people racist? So I formed a question in my mind at that time, at the age of 10, which was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And for the next 53 years, I have been looking for the answer to that question. So um, who better to go to than somebody who would, because, you know, I, I would ask people, you know, why are people racist? And, you know, oh, Daryl, well, you know, some people are just like that. That's just the way it is. Well, that answer was not satisfactory. It didn't explain it to me. You know, and I bought, I bought tons of books. I bought books on black supremacy, white supremacy, the Nazis in Germany, the neo-Nazis over here, the Ku Klux Klan. My books all talked about it, but they didn't explain why. Mm. So uh, I graduated with a degree in music and uh, in jazz and um, in 1980. Well, shortly thereafter, um, country music made a resurgence in our right. country. There had been a movie out called Urban Cowboy with uh, John Travolta, this mechanical bull and all these line dances. So all the clubs that were playing disco and top 40 and whatever else, they switched formats to country. So I'm a full-time musician. So, you know, if you want to work, you know, six or seven nights a week, you know, you play what's, what's happening. Right. And so I joined a country band and country and blues are the same music, the same three chords. All right? Absolutely. And so it was easy for me One, to play. One, four, five, right? One, four, five, tonic, subdominant, and dominant. And so um, I joined this country band. The band was established here in the Maryland area. They were, they were pretty well known. Um, and they played a lot of places. Well, they had a gig at a place called the Silver Dollar Lounge in a town called Frederick, Maryland, about an hour and 20 minutes from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. Now, the Silver Dollar Lounge was known, it had a reputation. It was known as an all-white lounge. I mean, there were no signs that said whites only or, you know, no colors allowed or whatever, nothing like that. Um, but, you know, the reputation was known. So right. black people did not go in there because, you know, if you go somewhere uh, where you're not welcome and alcohol is being served, it's not a good combination. Right. Correct. So um, here I was in the Silver Dollar Lounge. The, you know, the band had played there before. I never played there my first time. So after the first set of music, we took a break. And I'm following the band over to the band table. And I feel somebody from behind reach over and put their arm across my shoulder. 
Now, I don't know anybody in here, right? So I'm, you know, turning around trying to see who's touching me. And it was this white gentleman, I would say 15 to 18 years older than me. I had a big smile on his face, very happy. He's like, man, I sure like your all's music. I said, thank you. And I shook his hand and he pointed at the stage. He says, I've seen this here band before, but I had never seen you. Where'd you come from? And I explained to him, well, yeah, the band has played here before, but this is my first time. I just joined the band. Man, I sure like your piano playing. This is the first time I ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. Now, I was not offended, but (laughs) but I was surprised that this gentleman who had to be at least a decade and a half older than me did not know the black origin of Jerry Lee Lewis's piano style. Mm. And I said to him, I said, well, where do you think Jerry Lee Lewis learned how to play? And Uh-oh. he says, he says, what are you talking about? I said, he got that, he got that, uh, that style from the same place I did, from black, blues, and boogie-woogie piano players. That's where rock and roll, rockabilly evolved. Oh, no, 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 I never seen no black man play like that, except for you. Jerry Lee invented that stuff. I'm like, so I'm thinking, okay, dude never saw Little Richard or Fats Domino. Right. 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 And and I, you know, he, he didn't believe me. I said, listen, I said, I know Jerry Lee Lewis. He's a good friend of mine. He's told me himself of, of, of who he would see play and things like this. He didn't believe that either. Wow. But he, was, but he was so fascinated with me. He wanted to invite me back to his table and buy me a drink. Oh. I don't. Yeah, I don't drink alcohol, but I had a cranberry juice. He paid the waitress. He takes his glass. He clinks my glass and cheers me. And then he says. You know, this is the first time I ever sat down with a black man and had a drink. Now I'm completely baffled. <laughs> like, you know, how, how can this be? You know, I know that there are black people in Frederick, Maryland. I know this for right. a fact because I've seen them, right? So how did he miss them all? And, and at that point in my life, I had literally sat down with thousands of white people or anybody right. else, and had a meal, a beverage, a conversation. How had this never happened to this man? Mm. And I, I said to him, I said, why? And uh, he looked down at the table, didn't answer me. And I asked him again, I said, why? And his buddy who was sitting next to him elbowed him and said, tell him, tell him, tell him. I said, tell me. He looked back at me just as plain as day. And he said, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. I burst out laughing at this guy. Are you dead? Are you oh, yeah. Dead? Yeah. Wow. Because, because now um, I didn't I didn't believe him. You know, I, I know a lot about the Klan. Like I said, I have all these books I've been collecting right, you know, since, right. since, since teenage years, trying to find out this racism thing. And I know from reading my books, they don't just come up and embrace a black guy and want to buy him a drink and hang out. It doesn't work that way. So <laughs> I think the guy's, you know, pulling my leg. And while I'm laughing, he goes inside his pocket, pulls out his wallet. And hands me his clan membership card. Wow. Yeah. Intense. I, I look at this thing. I said, whoa. I recognize the, the clan insignia, which is a red circle with a white cross and a red blood drop in the center of the cross. This thing was for real. So I gave it back to him. I stopped laughing, of course. Right. And, um, <laughs> and um, you know, we talked about the clan and some other things. But he gave me his phone number and wanted me to call him any time I was to return to this bar because he wanted to, to bring his friends, you know, Klansmen and Klanswomen to see, as he put it, the black guy who plays like Jerry Lee. 
Now, I'm not sure he called me a black guy to his friends, but, you know. Right, whatever. right, right, right. And so I would call him every six weeks because, you know, we would play there on a Friday or a Friday and Saturday on the weekend every six weeks on, in rotation with other bands. I, and, I'm um, sorry. Yeah. I, I have. Don't forget this story because I want to hear the rest of it. Okay. I, I just have to ask you this question. At no point did you feel you were in danger to call him and have them meet you there? No, no, not at all. I mean, this guy was just super friendly and just fascinated by this new thing he had learned. Okay, that was a okay. novelty for him. Right. You know? And But I can tell you something, though, and I do know this for a fact, because I've, I've been there and done it and seen it. If I had come in there by myself, not as a musician to, to perform and all that kind of stuff, just come out, come in there and dance, because they have a dance floor, mm-hmm. there would have been a fight. Gotcha. I, I would have had to fight my way out of there. Okay. Okay, because in their mind, the only reason I'm I'm there is to pick up white women. Right. Okay. So anyway, I I call him, and um, he'd come out, and he'd bring Klansmen and Klanswomen to, to the gig. You know, they came in regular street clothes, not their right. Yeah, and uh, Remember it. They, yeah, they would gather around the the bandstand and watch me play with the band, and then they they get up on the dance floor and dance. And on the breaks, you know, I'd make my way over to his table, say hello. And some of them would hang there. They were curious about me. You know, they wanted to talk to me and meet me. Others would stand up and go across the room when they saw me coming. So it's like, you know, we don't want to talk to you. We don't want to see you. I mean, touch right. you. We just want to look at you. And that was cool. And so, you know, that went on until the end of that year. And then a long time, you know, I quit the band at the end of that year. Uh, so you know, I lost contact with the guy. I had no reason to go hang out with the clan, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, so a long time later, it dawned on me, Daryl, you blew it. The answer to your question that's been plaguing you since the age of 10, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? It fell right into your lap. Because who better to ask that question of than someone who would go so far as to join an organization that practices hating people who don't look like them? who don't believe as they believe, get back in contact with that guy and write a book about it. Because at that point, and still today, no book has been written on the Ku Klux Klan by a Black author, except for me, from the perspective of interviewing these people face to face. Correct. There have been two books written by Black authors, um, one in the 1930s and one from the 1940s, but each one detailed how he escaped a lynching, but not from from the perspective of interviewing your perspective lynchers, you know? Right, right, That's what right, I want right. to do. So um, long story short, I got back in contact with the guy. Uh, in fact, you, you, you'll get a kick out of this. Um, I found his number. And, because um, you know, I, I hadn't talked to him in you know, a long time. And um, I called the number. It had been disconnected. So I had to track him down. Mm. And um, it turned out he had moved. He didn't have a phone, but he had an address. So I, there was no way for me to call him and say, hey, I want to come over and talk to you, whatever. Um, so I just showed up at his apartment. Yeah, and I, I knock on the door. And, <laughs> <laughs> and wow. he opens the door. It was, you know, 7.30 one evening. He opens the door. He goes, Daryl, you know, you know, what are you doing here? And he like, steps out into the hallway and looks up and down the hallway you know, to see if I brought anybody with me. Well, when he <laughs> stepped out of his apartment, I stepped in. So he turns around, he comes back in. He goes, what's going on, man? Are you, are you still playing? What's going on? I say, yeah, 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 I'm still playing. But listen, 
I need to talk to you about the Klan. Well, he said he, uh, he had quit the Klan. Wow. Turns out he got kicked out of the Klan. But uh, yeah, that's another story. But anyway, um, I told him what I want to do. And I asked him if he would connect me with the Klan leader. Uh, Daryl, I can't do that, man. We know we get in trouble. And I said, well, you, you're already out of the Klan. Yeah, well, I'll still get in trouble if I bring a black guy to the leader, right? And uh, a state leader is known as a grand dragon. A national leader is known as an imperial wizard. So, you know, I want to meet the state leader from Maryland. And um, he, he didn't want to do it because he was afraid he was going to get in trouble. So I had to beg Physical, and plead with what, what, what Trouble in what sense, if you don't mind? Um, that I would get hurt. Uh, he, he he was genuinely concerned about my safety as well as his own. If you if you were to take me to this guy, right? And um, I, uh, I you know I begged and pleaded with him to give me the guy's address uh, and phone number. He finally gave it to me on the condition that I not tell this guy where I got his personal information. I said wow. okay. So uh, I well, had it sit- sounds like I I didn't mean to cut you off, but That's listening right. to this. Your your they always say what you aspire as a child comes to fruition in one form or another. This sounds like espionage, but go ahead. <laughs> okay. I'm gonna see <laughs> if I can show you something here. Um give me one second here while this thing do you see a picture there? I do not. Okay, hang on a second. Um See. You still see me, right? Yes. Okay. I'm gonna see if I can get. Where are the settings? Is this? Is this? No. This. This is not Zoom, is it? No. Okay. Well, I, I'll I'll send you some pictures. Okay. That you, that you can incorporate. But anyway, um, I I had my secretary call call this uh, this Grand Dragon. His name was Roger wow. Kelly. And uh, now my secretary is white. And I only mentioned it, not that I care, uh, because I didn't want to call the guy. I figured, oh, the guy told me, uh, the, the the first Klansman, um, Daryl, do not fool with Roger Kelly. He will kill you. I mean, he was that concerned about my, you know, safety. And so I figured, well, if the guy, you know, hates black people that much, I better let her call him. Because if I call him, he might pick up in my voice that I'm black and say, I'm not talking to you. Click. And my right, whole project right. would have ended. But I knew that if a white woman calls, he will know she's white. And he will not automatically assume that this white woman on the other end of the phone is working for a black man. Especially, a, especially a black man who's writing a book on the Klan because they don't exist. So that, that would up my chances of him agreeing to do an interview. And because um, I told her, do not tell him I'm black. Now, if he asks, don't lie to him. But don't give him reason to ask. And then... That way, when he sees me, he can decide right then and there if he wants to continue or go away or fight or whatever he wants to do. So she understood. So anyway, she so she called him, and he agreed to do the interview. And um, we got together. Uh, he came with an armed bodyguard. Wow. And um, we met in a motel room. And, um, you know, uh, everything was, you know, when, well, when he first walked, well, when, when they first walked in, they were like shaken because there's a black guy sitting there, right? <laughs> um, and then you know we did, sat did down. Did you have with, any security with you? No, no. But we had we had one little tense moment. Mm. But but it's a very important thing 
that I think everybody needs to hear and understand. Um, we're in this motel room and the Grand Dragon is sitting across this little table from me. It was like a little lamp table, not even as big as a, as a, as a, you know, coffee table, just a little lamp right. table. I took the lamp off and put a chair on one side for him, a chair on this side for me. And um, the bodyguard was standing at attention to his right. And I had a black canvas bag beside me at the foot of my chair. I had a cassette recorder in there, which I set in the middle of the table, all in hopes that he would um, allow me to record the interview, which he did. And I also had a blank cassettes, and I had a copy of the Bible in there because um, the Klan believes that, you know, they, they consider themselves to be a Christian organization. Correct. So they believe that the Bible preaches racial separation. Hmm. Now, I've never seen that in there. So I want to be able to, you know, reach down, pull up my Bible and say, here, Mr. Kelly, please show me chapter and verse where it says blacks and whites must be separate. So I'm all prepared. Every now, the bodyguard, um, he came in wearing military camouflage, that red circle, white cross, blood drop thing patch right here. And then over here were the letters KKK and embroidered on his cap. It said Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And on wow. his hip, he had a semi-automatic handgun. So he's standing at attention to Mr. Kelly's right. And um, every time my cassette would run out of tape, I'd reach down to get a fresh cassette. Or Mr. Kelly would say, Mr. Davis, the Bible says, you know, I'd reach down and get the Bible. Every time I reach down, the bodyguard reach up, <laughs> put his hand <laughs> on the butt of his gun. <laughs> you know, and I mean, I, I, I was okay with that because that's his job. He doesn't know me. He doesn't know what's in his bag, what's in my bag. His job is to protect his boss. So I got right. that, you know. And so after a little while, you know, after several times, he realized, you know, there's no threat there. And he relaxed. I went in and out of the bag. A little over an hour into this conversation, Mr. Kelly and I just talking like you and I are right now. And out of nowhere, this strange, very short, very um, fast noise happened. It went, said that, that was it. And we all jumped because it, it, was, it wasn't within our context of what we're talking. Right. It just came out of nowhere. And... Because the noise was so short and so fast, my ear could not discern what it was. And we all, because I, I perceived it to be an ominous, threatening noise, like I'm in trouble. Right. Because, you know, well, A, I'm a black guy. Here's the head of the Klan for the state of Maryland. Um, I'm already told that he, he would kill me if I fooled with him, you know. So I have all this running through my head. And so I, I'm thinking, okay, well, I know he made that noise because I didn't make it. Right. And because, I, and because I could not explain it, I perceived it to be an ominous, threatening noise. And so I went into survival mode. I jumped up from my table, I hit, I hit I went from my chair, I hit the table because I'm getting ready to come across that table and attack the Grand <laughs> Dragon and the bodyguard to preserve myself, right? Correct. You know, when you fear for your life, you go into survival mode. And there are about four things you can do. Some people, they just pass out. They faint because the fear is so great. The brain cannot process it and it shuts down and they fall out. <clears throat> I don't do that. Uh, second thing people will do, their muscles tighten up and they constrict and they start shaking. 
Right. You know, you, you can be punching them, kicking them. You know, they won't even be blocking. Just, like this. You see people rubbing the little fetal ball. Right. You know, uh, that's called paralysis by fear. They can't move. They're so shaken. Um, I don't do that either. The third thing people will do is to run away. And that is your best choice. As quickly as you can, separate yourself from the source of fear. Get away from it. You know, I would have chosen that if it had been available. But how are you going to outrun a bullet in a motel room? Correct. Right? So I'm not armed. My secretary is not armed. Only person I know for sure who is armed is the bodyguard. I can see his gun here. I don't know if Mr. Kelly has a, you know, something, a gun up, up inside his suit jacket or not. So the, the fourth thing you do is a preemptive strike. Get them before they get you. And right. that's what I was going to do. Because my job is to protect myself and my secretary. Like his job is to protect himself and, and, and his grand dragon. So I hit the table because I'm going to dive across there. And I'm looking right into Mr. Kelly's face, right into his eyes. I didn't say a word, but I, my eyes were speaking for me. And they were saying, what did you just do? But his eyes, he didn't say a word either. But his eyes were like looking right into mine. And I could read his eyes. His eyes were saying to me, what did you just do? And the bodyguard had his hand on his gun, like, what did either one of y'all just do? Well, right, right. Mary, my, my secretary, she was sitting to my left on top of the dresser because there were no more chairs. She realized what had happened, and she began explaining it. Before they even arrived, I had given her some money and sent her down the hall to get soda pop out of the, out of the vending machine and put it in the ice bucket, put ice, you know, get it all cold. So I'd be able to offer Mr. Kelly a cold beverage. Regardless of what we agree on or don't agree on, I'm going to be hospitable. I invite him. Correct. I'm going to treat him, you know. So <clears throat> we've been talking for a while. The bucket of, of soda pop is sitting in the ice next to Mary. The ice had begun melting and the cans of soda were falling down the ice. Wow. Right. Because it happened again. And we, all, we all began laughing. We all began laughing at how ignorant we all had been. But now this was a teaching moment. The learning would come later, but this was a teaching moment on, on, two, on two counts. One, when, when the noise happened, we all became fearful of one another. Right. That's a human emotion. Regardless of what color he is or what color I am, we don't even know each other. We, fe we, we, we both feared each other together. And when the fear was addressed, we felt relief, we felt joy, and we all laughed. Here I am laughing with the head of the clan, sharing the same humor. Right. right? Now, really, it wasn't funny because, I mean, somebody could have gotten shot over an ice yeah. cube, you know, yeah. but, but, we, but the relief caused us to laugh and we were happy for each other. Right. Right. But the second lesson taught is this, all because some foreign, and I say underline, circle, highlight the word foreign entity of which we were ignorant, being that being the bucket of ice cans of soda. I mean, we knew it was over there, but we long forgotten about it. Right. All because some foreign entity entered into our little comfort zone via the noise that it made, we became fearful and accusatory of each other. Mm. So the lesson taught is ignorance breeds fear. We fear that of which we are ignorant. We were ignorant as to what that noise was. So we feared it and blamed each other. Right. If you do not address 
that fear and keep it in check, that fear in turn will escalate into hatred because we hate the things that we fear that frighten us. Right. If you, if you don't address that hatred, that hatred in turn will escalate into anger, which escalates into destruction. We want to destroy the things that we hate. Why? Because they frighten us. But guess what? They may have been harmless and we were simply ignorant. Mm. So fortunately, you know, we saw that whole chain unravel. It stopped just short of the last component, destruction. Right. Bodyguard, you know, shot somebody or had I pounced across the table and hurt one of them. Right. But you did see exactly what I'm talking about four years ago uh, on August 12th, 2017 in Charlottesville, Virginia, at that large white supremacist rally. Right. Right. On that day, there was a lot of ignorance in Charlottesville. There was a lot of fear in Charlottesville. There was a lot of hatred in Charlottesville. And what did it culminate in? It culminated in destruction when a white supremacist got inside his car and tried to murder as many counter protesters as he could by driving the car full force, full speed into the crowd of protesters. He succeeded in injuring 20 people and murdering one young lady named Heather Heyer. So ignorance breeds fear, fear breeds hatred, hatred breeds destruction. Now, um, Personally, I think we go about things the wrong way in this country. We, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about the other person or talking at the other person or talking past the other person. Why don't we spend just a little bit of time talking with the other person? Okay, that's what I do. And we address, we spend too much time addressing the symptoms of the problem not the cause, the symptoms. Forget about the destruction. Why are we addressing the destruction? If it's destroyed, it's not coming back. All right. right? So we, we address the destruction. We address the hatred. We, we address the fear. Forget those things. Yes, they are real, but those are byproducts. Those are symptoms of the nucleus. All right. We need to address the nucleus. What is causing those byproducts? Ignorance. All right. We need to address ignorance. If we cure, if we cure ignorance, then there's nothing to fear because because we only fear that of which we're ignorant. So with nothing to fear, there's nothing to hate. With nothing to hate, there's nothing to destroy. Now, the good thing is there is a cure for ignorance. That cure is called education and exposure. So what we need to do is focus our resources, our energy, our money, our time spent on providing exposure and education to ignorance and cure that ignorance. You don't have to worry about all those byproducts. The more people well, know. Yeah, the I more people know. Ask, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I wanted to ask you a question based on that last uh, statement, because now that information seems to be at the stroke of a key, even though there's uh, a plethora of us who've um, read these books before it was uh, available, right? Mm -hmm. There's this ideology or this idea that 
and I'm, I'm saying it this way intentionally, but that a lot of the things that we were taught were actually incorrect. Yes. And it was taught intentionally to perpetuate what a lie, the big lie. <laughs> correct. Correct. So, Another big lie. <laughs> right. So not, not you know, the current one. <laughs> not the current one, but the right. So like I was watching um there was this white journalist, uh, I believe in the late fifties, and he was in the South somewhere, uh, asking white people of this town what they felt about uh civil rights and whatever was happening at this moment. It was a snippet. So it didn't go into it didn't give it didn't give much context. However, the answers gave me context to what actually has been what was happening. Mm-hmm. And based on the answers of the white interviewees, it was a fear of the loss of power. And and when I say power, I'm not talking power as this big uh, comic book villain, right? But but the grasp on the governance, the grasp on resources, the the the, the hold on the job market, yeah. You know, these were predominantly their issue. You know, these they're free; they can work just as hard as we do. Yeah, but work over there. Mm-hmm. Well, let me let me address that for you because I know all about that, and uh, and this is something that the media does not talk a whole lot about. Uh, this has been I, I knew about this back in 1974 when I was 15. Uh, I met I met the head of the American Nazi Party, and yeah, and that's a whole different story. But uh, he told me about this. Um, the, the founder of the American Nazi Party was a guy named George Lincoln Rockwell, and he was murdered by one of his own Nazis. Uh, he, he used to get into it dark with Dr. King all the time. But when he was murdered, his right-hand guy took over. Um, uh, his name was Matt Cole, K-O-E-H-L. I met Matt Cole. But uh, anyway, um, when 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 we, uh, I'm not sure how old you are, but I'm 63. But I'm 46. Okay, doesn't matter. When we, when we were kids, the black population in this country was 12%. Right? Native Americans, 1%. Hispanic people, right around 2%. Asians, right around 3%. Whites were like 88, 87, 88%. All right. Um, when uh, today, today, um, black people remain at 12%, 12.9, almost 13%. All right. Native Americans remain at 1%. Uh, Asians have almost doubled. They're at 5.9%, almost 6%. All right. Uh, Hispanics have more than doubled, more than tripled. They're at 17 point something percent. So if you take just 12 percent black, 17 percent Hispanic, that right there is 29 percent non-white. This is happening. Okay, the 2020 census last year, the census is taken every 10 years. And if you want to check it for yourself, you can go to uh, uscensus.gov and look at look at each decade what's happening. All right. Last year, the population of white people in this country, according to the U.S. Census, uh, is fifty nine percent. Fifty nine percent. It is well predicted in the year twenty forty two, which is two decades from now, twenty one years from now, it will be like this for the first time in our history. Okay. 
um, it will be 50% white, 50% non-white. And um, between 2045 and 2050, this is going to happen. Whites will become the minority for the first time. When you and, and you and you made a point, which is 100% correct, when you have sat on the throne of power for 402 years, and that's how long I've been here as as a descendant of slaves. All right, when you have sat on the throne of power for 402 years, you don't want to get off. You don't want you to, you don't know anything but power. You don't want to give that up. You don't want to abdicate the throne. Look, we got this last president who only sat on the throne for four years, and he still thinks he's there. He doesn't want to get off. Right. right? So these people are, 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 are just, you know, beside themselves. They, they feel that their power is being taken away and their identity is being erased. You know the term. Ironic. Folk. Yeah. You know the term white flight? Yes. White flight barely exists anymore in this country. The color of the American landscape has changed so much that anywhere you go now, there's already somebody there who does not look like you. Okay. And that, what, you know, I deal with Klan people, uh, neo-Nazis, alt-right, proud boys, you name them. I know them. And what they tell me, the ones who talk to me, Daryl, I don't want my grandkids to be brown. They call it the browning of America or white genocide through miscegenation. So now when, so that's why they're so gung-ho about integration, immigration, because, but see, when they say immigration, it's a code word. It is. Yeah. They're not, they're not talking about people coming here from Canada or the UK or Eastern Europe, because if their grandkids were to marry those people, you know, or their kids were to marry those people, their grandkids would be white. They're Correct. concerned about people coming from um, South America, Mexico, West Africa. And, and, and what did uh, what did Donald Trump say? Why are all these people uh, immigrating here from shithole countries? Why can't they? Why can't we have more people from Norway? I've been to Norway. I didn't see too many people over there that look like me. Hmm. You know, so what's implied there? And you know, when you see the capital insurrection. You see somebody walking through the Capitol Rotunda with a Confederate battle flag and somebody else wearing a Camp Auschwitz T-shirt. Right. You don't have you don't have to ask them what, what do they want. You know what they want. They want that power. They want to go back to when they had that power. You know, yeah, I, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite ironic. I'm trying to remember this uh, guy's name. He was a Virginia colonizer and he was journaling the experience of the um colony um as they they sent him into the tribe the indian tribe of virginia at this particular place to to kind of case it out meet the people and do what he did and in his journal he documented that these people were mahogany cinnamon colored that's Mm -hmm. you and i and um you know he made a statement about the men how great they looked and how they moved and all this and then he made a statement about the women how how, um what is that term that they always exotic yeah these women are right And, and in his journal he clearly said that they were dark brown Mm -hmm. there's an indian tribe they weren't african they were Mm -hmm. native american yeah however the point I want to bring up 
is the irony of your statement. He said, within three generations, we can bleed out their mahogany color and then take control of this area as well. So you say that their biggest concern is that happening to them. Could it be uh, reflective of why they were trying to send those that um, broke out of the prisoner of war era of America and it was trying to send them to Liberia because they was afraid what they did was going to happen to them. Is that uh, similar to what they were telling you? It's, it's a possibility. It's a, it's a good possibility. They, they see themselves being erased and in their mind, they've been brainwashed to believe this country was founded by white men. The constitution was created and signed by white men. This, this country was built by white men. Forget the backs of slaves. That's that's that that's their that's their history, and that's what the, what they want to maintain, and that's what they push. So whatever you know, whatever it takes to support that is what they're going to do. Now, the white population in this country, the the, uh, the the majority of them, say, you know, I don't have a problem with that. You know, that's evolution. This is what happens. Um, no big deal. But there is a large percentage of the population that does have trouble with this 2042 thing happening. And this is what they're trying to stop, all right? Which is why they're trying to prevent people from coming into this country, uh, all kinds of, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, and now, and this is why you have so many more groups. When I first started this work, like I said, almost 40 years ago, there was just the Klan, uh, white power skinheads, um, neo-Nazis, that was it. Today you got the Klan, the white power skinheads, the neo-Nazis, the Proud Boys, the alt-right, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, on and on and on. And they're all saying, you know, come join us, come join us. You know, we're going to take back our country. We're going to build that wall, send those people back to where they belong. We're going to make America great again, you know, and all this other kind of nonsense. Um, and so people out of fear, because they're becoming phobic about this, go and join these groups. Because it's like, you know, man, I used to live in an all-white neighborhood, and this guy's from Mexico, and that guy's from Nigeria, and that guy, I don't know where the hell he's from, but he's not from here, you know? And you know, they're, right. they're feeling this, this closing in, right? And so they go and join these groups to take back our country, right? And so when the group fails to do it, or, or it's not acting fast enough, some of these people say, you know what? If the Klan can't do it, or the neo-Nazis can't do it, I'll do it myself. And that's when they walk into the black AME church in Charleston, uh, South Carolina, and boom, 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 and murder nine black people conducting Bible study. Or they walk into the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh, boom, 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 and shoot up 11 Jewish people. Or the Walmart in El Paso and murder 23 Mexican people. <clears throat> or the Sikh uh, Indian temple in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, and murder uh, six uh, Sikh uh, Indians. These particular people are called lone wolves. They're acting on their own. Now, as we get closer and, clo and closer, now, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, I'm just telling you the facts. As we get closer and closer to 2042, we're gonna see more and more of these lone wolves. In fact, you saw one, you saw one a few months ago yeah. when, when that 17 year old boy from my home state, Illinois, came into uh, Wisconsin and with his gun and shot those three protesters. He murdered two of them and blew the third guy's arm off 
got right. a bottle of water from the cops and went home. Right. Right. Kyle Rittenhouse was his name. That's a lone wolf, 17 years old. All right. Um, <clears throat> we have intelligence agencies in this country that have operatives that can fit the profile and they can join these groups, these subversive groups undercover because they fit the profile. Right. Right. And they, and they can gather uh, intelligence and report it back and then foil some of their plots. Like, for example, <clears throat> you remember a few months ago, there was that crazy group in Michigan that was right. going to murder, kidnap and murder the governor. Yes, we I remember. Are, yeah, we already had operatives in that group. That's that's why she wasn't kidnapped and murdered, because our operatives gathered that intelligence and reported it back. And everybody got arrested right before it could happen. Right. So you had, right. So that's great that you can infiltrate these groups. But we don't have any any agencies or anybody who can infiltrate a lone wolf. How do you how do you infiltrate one person? You can't. Right. Well, let me let me ask you this question. Um, and I've been asking people this, uh, I would say, for the past several months, as different as 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 this cancel culture really is predicated on if you don't say what I agree with, then you can't speak. One thing I've noticed is, and and people might get mad at me, but I'm going to say it anyway because I. Those who know me or listen to me uh, heard me say it. There are shared ideologies on both sides of this fence. Mm-hmm. The I guess the, what would what would separate them could be uh, race or ethnicity, right, or or, or classification, mm-hmm. but the ideologies are exactly the same. Believe it How or not, we, go ahead. Black, black supremacists and white supremacists get along. They get along fine because it's the same ideology. Each one believes in purity of their race. And so they respect that belief from each other. Right. Right. So 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 if that's the case, are, are we are we looking at uh, uh Separate but equal is what they're both yelling. And then the rest of everyone else is like, well, we can all coexist or intermingle and have the same piece. What What is the end result here, I, I guess, is what I'm asking. Okay. You, you, have, you have what are called um, white supremacists and you have what are called white separatists. Okay. Both of them are racist. You know, uh, they fall under the, the the umbrella of racism. All right. right. Um, what has happened is this: back back in the day, the term, the main term, was white supremacist. You know, I am superior. You are inferior. I, you know, that's what makes me supreme. Um, and uh, and as that movement grew, the Klan, which became the largest racist group in in our history. At one time, they had four million members in this country. Wow! All right, so um, that was the term. But along, but as the as the membership grew, so did violence, and but just violence just you know went you know berserk, right? And so in in uh, 1871, 1871, um, which was um, six years after the Civil War, Congress the violence had just gone so far. Congress got involved. And they passed what was called the Ku Klux Klan Acts 
1871. And that Rand plan suppressed it, ran it underground. All right. And a lot of it disbanded and stuff like that. It was still there, but it was kind of underground. Um, and so that, because the term white supremacy, um, it, people began dropping out of it because that term carried a lot of baggage with it. A lot of hangings, a lot of, you know, dragging people behind vehicles, right. bombing their churches, bombing their houses, all that kind of stuff. And while there were, you know, a lot of white people who were involved in the Klan uh, that, were, that, that, were, you know, that, that was doing this, you know, a lot of them did not want to participate in that kind of activity. You know, I don't like you because you're black. I don't like you because you're Jewish, but I'm not going to kill you. Right. You know, I'm going to keep you suppressed. Uh, so they began dropping out when all the violence happened. So membership began going down, all right? And so the term white supremacy um, had a bad taste to it. It wasn't, it wasn't palatable to, to recruit people. So they changed the name when the Klan was reborn uh, in um, 1915 uh, with the movie A Birth of a Nation right. by, by filmmaker D.W. Griffith. That sparked a, re- a revival interest in it. And it was still white supremacists then. But, you know, and they grew and they grew. But then with all the violence, the membership went down. So they changed the name or they changed the ideology, so to speak, uh, in, in, in words, not not in belief, but in right. words, uh, because the term white supremacist was a turnoff for some white people. They said, um, I'm a white separatist. I don't hate you. I don't hate Jewish people. I don't hate black people. I just love my own race. You know, you can have your parks and your schools and your workplaces. We should be able to have ours. Oh, okay, that's cool. I I like that. Sign me up. So you get people joining the Klan under the guise of white separatism, right? Mm. And as the membership grew, more and more violence happened, right? So they had to to drop that name. And um, so now white supremacy was, was, was not palatable. White separatism was not palatable. So now they come up with a new name. Um... White nationalist. What right. is what is a nationalist? A nationalist is someone who loves their country. You're a nationalist. I'm a nationalist. You know, um, but we don't walk around saying I'm a black nationalist. It's a nationalist. Some, there, there are a lot. There, there are yeah. There are black nationalists. Sure, just like, just like there are white nationalists. But when you when you attach that adjective to it, something is wrong. Something is wrong. You know why why, do, why can't you just say I, I'm an American? I'm an American. That's what I am. Um, but now, you know, when you when you say I'm a nationalist, okay, that's fine. But when you tell me you're a white nationalist, there's an issue there. Or if you say you're a black nationalist, there's an issue there. Why can't we both love our nation together? Right? So um, so now that's 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 the term. And then they change it to alt-right. They, they, you know, they keep changing the name. So it becomes more palatable and they can recruit more members. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the old cliche, a rose by any other name is what? Still a rose. Still a rose. Exactly. Right. And, you know, that's, it's just ironic um, how you explain this, because this seems to be the same okey-doke that has happened to us, because it goes from... Um, because every, the, black black folk is not one monolithic, right? Right. And then everybody is not from Africa. A good portion right. of us is from here. But the the classifications 
like you just described, change from uh, the tribal name to Indian to mulatto in some cases mm -hmm. to color to black to Negro, Afro mm -hmm. to, to African American. Mm -hmm. So, is it a fair assessment that this uh, corporate experience, as they say, known as America, uh, predicated racism on on the idea of capitalism and just utilizes false information to all sides involved to keep this machine going. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and, you know, and we have to take some responsibility for that as well. You know, you know, we keep changing uh, what we want to be called every 20 or so years, you know, and it confuses people. People don't don't know what how, how to address you. I don't want to step on eggshells. You know, right. you prefer to be called black or African American or right. you know. Now, now I'm speaking for myself. You know, you know, a lot of people think, oh, you know, black people, you know, they all think alike, they all speak alike. No, we don't. You know, like you said, we're not monolithic, no more so than any white person is. Just like the Klan does not speak for all Christians, right? right. Um this is just Daryl Davis talking. I don't have a problem with the word colored. I have no problem with that word whatsoever. If somebody calls me colored, I have no problem. If they call me Negro, I have no problem. Black, I have no problem. African-American, I never use the term, okay? And the reason being, um, two things. One, I, I lived in Africa. I lived there for 10 years in different countries. Um, obviously, my ancestry is from Africa. I'm not ashamed of that, that's fine. OK, in fact, any 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 white American that, you know, any white person in this country that, you know, uh, if you want to go back far enough, they also are African-American as far as I'm concerned, because the first form of human being was found where in Ethiopia and it was known as Lucy. And so we so all humanity goes back to Africa. OK, so regardless of what color you are. So until until. A, an, a, uh, an older um, remains of a human being are found somewhere else. Let's say in China, for example, if, if you find a, an older human, be human being than Lucy in China, then we all would be Chinese Americans. Right. Right. Okay? I get your so, point. right. So to me, African-American is someone who came over here recently and became naturalized. When you've been here for 400 years, as I have, you are an American. Now, if you need to describe me because, you know, um, somebody's looking for me, uh, well, he's black um, or, you know, you, you say I'm wearing a red shirt, but, you know, there are tens of people out there. Well, he's a black guy wearing a red shirt. That's fine. I have no problem with that. Or if, if I committed some kind of crime and you saw me and you're telling the police, um, do to me, African-American is, is a misnomer because you, you see some, some black guy snatch a person run down the street. Is he African-American or is he from Nigeria or is he from Jamaica or Trinidad, Tobago or the Virgin Islands or Puerto Correct. Rico? You know, so it's just like a lot of us, you know, cannot tell the difference between somebody from Vietnam or Korea or China or Japan. All right. They can tell the difference and they get very upset. If you confuse them. Exactly. Right. So, you know, um, I prefer just to be known as an American. If you have to go any further than that, you can say he's black. You can say he's colored. He's a Negro, whatever. I don't have a problem with that because we have 
the the um the uh, Negro Baseball League. Right. Are we going to change that name to the African American Baseball League? No. <laughs> we have the uh, National Association for the Advancement of what colored people. Are we going to change that to the N quadruple AP? No. So this good, and we're going to uh, circle back to music, but but. I have to ask this question based on what you said, and specifically because you said you lived in Africa for 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. There's this concept of Black Americans wearing what they believe is African garb. And it's and false. celebrating, right, what they believe is African culture. Mm -hmm. uh, is it actually of Africa? Do you think there's this identity crisis amongst our people trying yes. to connect to something? What, where's... Yes. Okay. And see, unfortunately, a lot of us don't know our own history, which is why education is so important, so important for everybody. Okay. Um, our, our, our identity, identities and, uh, and culture and history was stripped away from us when we came to this country forcibly, right? Like, you know, what is my name? My name is Davis. All right. Davis is a Welsh name, comes from Wales. I have played in Wales several times. And believe it or not, the name Davis is as common over in Wales as the name Smith or Jones is here. Okay. Because, one, because you know, I, I knew the name Davis was Welsh. And so I'm standing on stage and I said to my audience, anybody out there named Davis? Half the place, went, yeah. You know, I say, hey, cuz, what's up? <laughs> you know, but um, seriously, it's, you know, it's a very popular name over there. Um, do I know what my name was when I came here through my ancestors? No. You know, can I go? I, I've been to Gore Island. I lived in Senegal. Gore Island is in Senegal. I've been there. I've seen those, those holding cells where the slaves came from. I've, I've stood there. All right. Can I go to Senegal or any, or anywhere there in West Africa and find, and find my third, fourth, fifth generation cousins named Davis? No, they're there. But they're not Davis. Right. What name do I look for? I don't know. But if my name was um, McDonald or, uh, or O'Brien, I can go to Ireland and find, and find them immediately. Right. Okay. So we had our stuff taken from us. And that's why we're longing to have something that we can claim as our own, even if it's false. Like a lot of, believe it or not, unfortunately, a lot of black people don't realize that Kwanzaa is not African. It was created right here in California. Right. Correct. Right. Um, you know, but they don't realize that. I, <clears throat> when I was going to Howard, I went to get my hair cut uh, across the street at this uh, beauty salon. Now, why did I go to a beauty salon instead of a barber? Because there was this hot looking uh, hairdresser in there that I wanted to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I went in there. So, you know, you, you know, you do men's hair. Oh yeah, come on in. So I'm sitting there, you know, and she's doing my hair and stuff. And she says, you know, where are you from? And I said, what do you mean now? Or, or where was I born? She goes, well, you know, both. And I said, well, I live in Potomac, but I'm, I'm going to Howard University. I live on campus. I was born in Chicago. And she says, um, I, I, I'm trying to figure out, you know, your, your accent. And I said, oh, uh, well, I've lived a lot, a lot of different places around the world. And I said, you know, I lived in Africa for a number of years and I've been in Europe and blah, blah, blah. And then we were talking some more. And then I said something about when I was in Ethiopia, blah, blah, blah. She goes, you've been to Africa and Ethiopia too? 
Yeah. I, I, I said, okay, I'm not going to ask her out for a date. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, so that's, you know, we we need that education. And, and also, you remember the Afro? Yes, I do. That did not, that was not invented in Africa. That was invented right here in our country. Right here. See, I'm, I'm happy you said that because, uh, again, a lot of, so let's just go right to the point before I, I give this long explanation because I, I'm seeing a, 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 a huge connection, a thread of what is called Black American culture. Right, Afrocentric or whatever. Right, popularizing around the world then being returned back as it started somewhere else. Uh, let's talk about music for a minute. Okay, because and then I and then I've got to run, but I'd love to do another you know music program with you because I've got another Zoom at two o'clock. Okay, cool. All right. Okay. Um. So, I tell people a lot, and I'm currently exploring and writing on this in regards to, um, I guess, critical race theory for that matter. I don't t- particularly like to use that term all the time, but I think mm-hmm. it falls in line with that. Black American music is the new. Uh, King Cotton industry. Do, would, I don't even know if it's new, but do you, do you see a parallel between cotton, the cotton industry, and the music industry? Even I want to sure. say particularly to the blues, but it's it's not even just predicated. No, to it's, that. it's not even just. It's it's every every form of American music. Okay, it's rap, it's the blues, it's jazz, it's swing. Um, I, I mentioned country, even bluegrass. You got African um, buck wing dancing when they do their clogging. That's where that came from over here. Um, also from Ireland, though, but they made a combination of it. The banjo, all that kind of thing. Uh, R&B, you know, we we, we, can go, we can go back to the blues. We can go back to jazz. Look, um, people like, like uh, King Oliver, Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Count Basie. Who, who was, who, who did they consider the king of jazz? Benny Goodman. Benny Goodman was a great musician and he did a lot of wonderful things. He would have black people in his band and he would refuse to play if they would not let the black player in. Okay. He did a lot of good things. He was not the king of jazz. All right. He didn't, he did not invent jazz. Um, uh, uh, Edward Kennedy Ellington. He only got the title Duke, not King, but Duke. Right. Okay. Uh, William Basie. He only got the title count not King. All right. Um, the King of swing was Sammy K another white guy swing and sway was Sammy K. That was the slogan. Um, man, nobody swung harder than uh, Lionel Hampton and count Basie, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, Elvis, Elvis was great. I loved Elvis, but he was, he did not invent that stuff. And he, and he, and he even said, even said in two, in two, two places, one, that fast domino was the king of rock and roll. And another time he pointed at Chuck Berry, who, who he was watching play and said, there goes the king of rock and roll. He didn't like the term king of rock and roll for himself because he admitted it, who, who, who his influences were. But the media, the press were not going to let him give credit because, see, at first, the white establishment hated Elvis Presley. Because they felt he was corrupting white youth by doing all that black music and dancing around like a black person, shaking Correct. his hips and all that, right? Gyrating. To the to the uh, to the to your point about the King Cotton industry, when they realized they, they did not like that man, right? They kicked him off a of TV. 
And then when they had to bring him on, they only shot him from the waist up. All right. When they realized how much money Elvis Presley could generate, all of a sudden they embraced him. He's the king. He invented rock and roll. King Cotton. <laughs> that's right. No, that's right. That's yeah. right. So Man. let's let, let, let's do a part two and, and let, let, let's let's do music. Definitely, definitely, definitely. It's just great talking to you, man. You're a wealth of knowledge. <laughs> Remember, hit that subscribe button and that like button. Sign up for our email newsletter and become a member by joining our Patreon, where some of our more intensive content will be living. But you can always find some stuff here on YouTube as well. 